Welcome to episode 58 of the Montana Values Podcast. In this show, we'll talk all about the DOI, Montana's Department of Injustice, led by none other than Austin Knudsen. Let's get right into it with our host, Tammy Fisher. Well, folks, the report is out. Yep, the so-called investigative report into Montana's Attorney General and his antics in pressuring St. Peter's Hospital to follow Austin Knutson, the Attorney General's medical advice, and deliver ivermectin to a patient. You remember, we talked about this case in episodes 49 and 57, where we discussed Austin's failure to mind his own business and how inappropriate it was for him and his staff to get involved. We also discussed the decision by the Montana Senate President Mark Blaisdell and House Speaker Wiley Galt to appoint a special counsel to investigate the matter and Austin's shenanigans. We told you then that the investigation was useless, as the special counsel has virtually no authority to actually investigate, and because she is blinded to being able to interview or obtain documents from St. Peter's Hospital staff, she really couldn't investigate anything at all. We predicted the investigation would be a big fat nothing burger and would be touted as exonerating Knutson of any wrongdoing. Well, guess what, folks? We were right. But what we didn't expect was Knutson to be dumb enough to tell on himself. And we didn't expect that the public service commissioner and former wackadoo legislator Jennifer Fielder herself was also involved in the shenanigans. And holy schmoly, the report tells us that the St. Peter's Hospital scenario was an absolute shit show from day one. The incompetence of two elected officials who make over $100,000 in taxpayer-funded wages annually is in full display when you read the report. So let's go through it. Remember when we told you that the special counsel's authority was limited to reviewing records of public agencies? Yeah, well, we were right. But the special counsel decided that she could go outside of her authority. I mean, I guess since everyone else in this scenario went outside of their authority, she thought, went in Rome. And she decided to interview not the staff of St. Peter's, but their lawyer. So she thought it prudent to review the attorney general's records and then talk to St. Pete's lawyer. So that means that she thought, One, the scope of her authority by statute didn't really mean anything because, again, it didn't mean anything to Austin Knutson or Fielder, so what the hell? And two, when she exceeded the scope of her authority, she decided the best evidence to obtain was to go to St. Peter's lawyer, who had zero involvement in the scenario. So the special counsel sought to buttress her investigation with hearsay. And hearsay is going to a third person for evidence, the lawyer, that the first person, the staff, could provide. So we're starting out with a bang here, folks. Here's the special counsel's justification for exceeding the scope of her authority. Quote, The statute limits the special counsel's power to examine documents to those records created by employees, officers, and agencies of the Montana state government. It does not empower the special counsel to compel testimony or documents from third parties. At the start of the inquiry, the special counsel informed minority leadership that she did not intend to reach out to the hospital and would limit the inquiry solely to government records. However, 
Following the initial review of documents, the special counsel concluded that it was necessary to speak with counsel for St. Peter's Health, Kathleen Abke, while maintaining a balance between a permitted examination of records and an impermissible investigation, end quote. Um, interviewing St. Pete's lawyer doesn't somehow justify exceeding the scope of statutory authority. Um, that's not a legitimate excuse. So basically what she's saying is, I know I can't interview witnesses, so I will interview the witness's lawyer instead, and maybe no one will mind that I use hearsay throughout my report and I exceed the scope of my authority in doing so. I mean, yeah, what the hell? Montanans are dumb. We probably won't notice. Here are the background facts that the special counsel reported. During the weekend of October 9th, 2021, an 82-year-old woman was admitted to St. Peter's Health in Helena, Montana, following a diagnosis of COVID-19. Shortly after her admission, a family friend serving as the patient's advocate reached out to Deputy Attorney General Kristen Hansen, regarding concerns about the patient's care. Over dozens of text messages, the advocate relayed the concerns of the patient and her family. The advocate explained that a legal document, a power of attorney naming the patient's daughter as medical decision maker, was delivered to the hospital for the patient's signature. However, the document was not provided to the patient and remained unsigned and invalid for three days as the patient continued deterioration. The hospital's counsel confirmed a delay in the document's delivery. However, she asserted that the document was provided to the patient as the care team was able, that the patient was awake, talking, and directing her care during the delay period, and that the hospital's internal investigation will likely reveal more details explaining the delay. You see, folks, this is important. A power of attorney for medical decision-making doesn't spring into effect. It means nothing until the patient is actually incompetent and can't make decisions for themselves. So there is no reason to expedite the signature of the patient when the patient is actually competent. So a delay in getting a signature when the hospital is completely overwhelmed with sick patients, it's not a legitimate reason to cry foul. If the patient is walking and talking, the family has no authority, zero authority to make decisions for the patient anyway. So the hospital could wait until things slowed down to get the document to the patient. Just because they didn't deliver the document in the time frame demanded by the family doesn't mean they did anything wrong. And importantly, no delay in care was caused by the delay in delivering the document. And that's the most important part. What harm came to the patient in not having that document? No harm, because she's walking, talking, and can make her own medical decisions. She got care that she was given, right? So she got the care, no delay making her own decisions. The document is just for when she becomes incompetent. So it doesn't matter. It's sixes, right? After Hansen gets the text message from the patient's advocate or family member, Hansen calls Knudsen. Then, at 9 p.m. on October 12th, Montana Highway Patrol trooper is sent by Knutson to the hospital. And it wasn't just one trooper, folks. It was two. The trooper spoke with the patient's sister and daughter in the St. Pete's parking lot. There, the troopers obtained the statements of the sister and daughter. Then the troopers called Hanson. The trooper then calls the Lewis and Clark County attorney, who tells the troopers, no crime, no charges. 
Now, here's where it gets interesting. The special counsel says to the DOJ, why'd you send the trooper? Meaning, what was the basis, your perceived jurisdiction or power to act or power to investigate this matter? And you know what the response was? Well, we got ourselves a new jurisdictional argument, kids. And now we're up to three shots at trying to justify the attorney general and the Montana Highway Patrol troopers' involvement here. This is so freaking absurd. I mean, folks, here's the argument given by our esteemed attorney general after his first two jurisdictional arguments went up in flames. The Department of Justice told the special counsel that their office and the Highway Patrol are duty-bound to investigate claims of patient mistreatment, as are all peace officers in their role as community caretakers. Case law explains the underlying rationale of the community caretaker doctrine is that a peace officer has a duty to promptly investigate situations in which a citizen may be in peril or needs some type of assistance. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds really compelling. But let's examine what the community caretaker doctrine actually is. Quote, the community caretaker doctrine is operative where law enforcement initiates contact with a citizen not to investigate the commission of a crime, but to investigate a potential vehicle accident or otherwise to ensure the safety of citizens, end quote. So these are what your typical welfare checks are. You haven't heard from your mother in 10 days. You call 911 to have law enforcement do a welfare check to make sure your mom's not dead on the floor. You're worried your friend is going to kill themselves. You call 911 and ask for a welfare check so the cops can ensure your friend isn't suicidal or dead on the floor. Car is pulled over alongside the road and you're sleeping in the back. The cop knocks on the window to see if you're okay. That's what community caretaker means. That's what the doctrine is for. And the most important part, of the community caretaker role is that, quote, for the doctrine to apply, the reasons for law enforcement's contact or investigation must be totally divorced from the detection, investigation, or acquisition of evidence relating to the violation of a criminal statute, end quote. Well, that's the kicker, because here we know the use of law enforcement was not, in fact, divorced from the detection, investigation, or acquisition of evidence relating to a violation of criminal statute because, drumroll please, Austin Knudsen admitted to that fact. How did he do this? In a number of different ways. First, a text message to a hospital board member where Austin says that he was, quote, about to send law enforcement in and file unlawful restraint charges, end quote. So he intends to send in the cops and file charges, which by definition means the cop is going to investigate a violation of criminal statute. Second, in response to a media inquiry about the event and why he sent in a Montana Highway Patrol trooper, Austin said, quote, we had an allegation that there was criminal activity going on. So, in response to this allegation of criminal activity going on, Knutson said, quote, We knew we needed to get some more information, and we had some family who were interested in talking about what they believe was criminal activity. So we knew we needed a report. So we had a decorated trooper close. That was the calculus, end quote. So he admits he sent the trooper to investigate an allegation of criminal activity, not to do a welfare check, 
but to investigate criminal activity. These are Austin's words that directly conflict his excuse that they use the trooper as a community caretaker and not as a cop investigating criminal activity. And finally, the nail in the coffin for this community caretaker excuse. Another drum roll. The cop never went inside the hospital. If the cop was a community caretaker, he would have laid eyes on the citizen patient because the community caretaker role is to ensure the safety of the citizen. That isn't what happened because the cop never went inside to see the citizen. Instead, she took witness statements and witness statements are taken to, just like the law tells us, quote, acquire evidence related to a violation of criminal statute. And you don't call the Lewis and Clark County attorney unless you're asking about criminal activity in Lewis and Clark County. So the community caretaker excuse is, drumroll, horseshit, because it doesn't apply to magically and retroactively give jurisdiction to the cops or the attorney general in this case. And again, This community caretaker bullshit is no less than the third attempt by Knutson to magically create a jurisdictional basis for his involvement. First, he said he had, quote, concurrent jurisdiction under Montana's criminal code, which is Title 45. But we debunked that bullshit argument in our first episode on this case. Title 45 doesn't cover jurisdiction. Doesn't talk about the power to investigate or prosecute. Does not mention not even once, the term attorney general. So that jurisdictional argument fails and is just made up. So when Austin figured out because someone smarter than him must have told him, hey, that Title 45 concurrent jurisdiction argument is absurd, he then pivoted to his second jurisdictional argument, which was, Quote, after previously pointing to a different segment of state law when asserting jurisdiction, Knutson's office said Wednesday it has the power to investigate, quote, patient abuse or patient neglect, end quote, through its Medicaid fraud control unit. But the complaint wasn't about Medicaid fraud. And we debunked this bullshit jurisdictional argument, too, because no one in the scenario had a complaint of overbilling or underbilling. And patient abuse and neglect don't fall under the Medicaid fraud unit. So then, after the investigation is actually started, Austin, through his crack deputy attorney, now claims the jurisdictional basis was community caretaker. And now you know that that claim is also bullshit, because by Austin's own words, he sent the cop to investigate criminal activity. And if you are sent to investigate criminal activity, you aren't acting as a community caretaker and must Yes, must. Then have the jurisdiction to investigate the criminal activity. And we know, folks, that the trooper had no jurisdiction and the attorney general had no jurisdiction to investigate criminal allegations at St. Peter's Hospital. The entities with the power to investigate allegations at St. Peter's Hospital? Well, that would be the Helena Police Department or Sheriff's Office and the Lewis and Clark County Attorney. So even after three swings at the bat to clamor together a jurisdictional argument, they failed. Knutson, by his own admissions, has kicked his own ass. 
He never had jurisdiction to get involved in this situation. And all he did was create a complete and utter shit show laid bare for the public to see. But let's move on. So when Austin hears of the family's claims, before he sends the trooper, he contacts a St. Pete's Hospital board member. According to the report, Via text message, the attorney general relayed the family's claims that the patient was being denied her preferred informed medical treatment, access to legal documents, family visitation, and the ability to leave. The attorney general stated that he was, quote, about to send law enforcement in and file unlawful restraint charges, end quote. Now, that's what's written in the report. But the actual evidence? Well, that's different. What the special counsel conveniently leaves out of the written content of her investigative report is the full text communication from Austin to the board member. And what did she leave out that you have to find in the appendixes of the report? Quote, you have a patient in there who is one, being denied her preferred informed treatment, two, being denied access to legal counsel despite a power of attorney being prepared for her, three, being denied any visitors, including her family, and four, being denied the ability to leave. I'm about to send law enforcement in and file unlawful restraint charges. I know it's after hours, but I'd appreciate some speed. This has been going on since yesterday, and I was hoping the hospital would do the right thing, but my patience is almost gone, end quote. And from these statements... House Speaker Wiley Galt and Senate President Mark Blaisdell, both Republicans, said the report, quote, did not produce any evidence to support allegations that the attorney general harassed, threatened or intimidated health care workers, as has been reported in the media, end quote. Notice how Galt and Blaisdell needle a thread there versus thread the needle. They focus on no threats to quote, healthcare workers. But for sure, there's a threat. Because what happens when Austin loses his patience? I mean, isn't that the threat? When you say to your kid, I'm about to lose my patience, isn't that a threat that punishment will soon follow unless they alter their behavior? Well, of course it is. So while Galt and Blaisdell seek to clear Austin, their golden boy who is eyeing the governor's chair, who they must apparently save from himself, the facts and the evidence do anything but absolve Austin from culpability. The threat was to a hospital board member. Galt and Blaisdell overlook that threat and focus instead on healthcare workers and the St. Pete's CEO, people who were not recipients of the threat. Listen closely to what Galt and Blaisdell say and don't say. Quote, St. Peter's CEO explicitly said he did not feel threatened by the attorney general and the hospital confirmed that Austin Knutson never spoke to any medical providers, end quote. All true. But what they conveniently leave out is the threat to the board member. Sneaky bastards, aren't they? Even the attorney general's spokesperson, Kyler Narrison, joined in with Blaisdell and Galt in trying to whitewash the evidence, he said. Quote, no one at the Department of Justice threatened anyone while trying to get to the bottom of allegations reported to us, end quote. But then, when confronted with the actual evidence, Narrison clammed up. 
Quote, Narison declined to answer a follow-up question asking for a distinction between a threat and Hansen discussing legal ramifications with the provider or the attorney general telling the hospital board member in a text that his patience was almost gone and he was on the cusp of sending law enforcement to the hospital and filing charges, end quote. So Galton Blaisdell and the AG spokesperson absolve Austin from any wrongdoing while blinding themselves to the facts and evidence of wrongdoing. And it is a crime in Montana to intimidate or threaten. Montana Code 45-5-203. Intimidation. One, a person commits the offense of intimidation when, with the purpose to cause another to perform or to omit the performance of any act, the person communicates to another under circumstances that reasonably tend to produce a fear that it will be carried out, a threat to perform without lawful authority any of the following acts. A. Inflict physical harm on the person threatened or any other person. B. Subject any person to physical confinement or restraint. Or C. Commit any felony. So let's apply the facts. Austin's words in the text to the law. Quote, I'm about to send law enforcement in and file unlawful restraint charges. This has been going on since yesterday, and I was hoping the hospital would do the right thing. But my patience is almost gone. End quote. So we know Knutson communicates with the board member. Check. That's one part of the crime. The board member responds to the communication by immediately springing into action. Check. That's the second part. So we know the board member believed Knutson would carry out his threat. Check. And I know, because I'm a lawyer, that Knutson never had any lawful authority to arrest anyone at the hospital. But the board member doesn't know that. And finally, if in fact Knutson sends law enforcement to charge the hospital with unlawful restraint, someone gets arrested. That means that someone is, quote, subject to physical confinement or restraint, just like it says in the statute. So as we apply the facts and the evidence to the law, and the evidence, mind you, is Knutson's own words. Do we have a violation of the criminal intimidation statute under Montana law by our very own attorney general? Hmm. Well, Montana, we will let you decide. We're going to end this episode with that thought. Because that thought merits some consideration. According to the Montana GOP, as we predicted, nothing happened here. Here's what they said. Quote, the report exonerated Republican officials of any wrongdoing and Democrats and members of the press engaged in defamation and misleading and outright false political attacks on Montana's attorney general, end quote. No, they didn't. See, this is what criminals do, folks. When the facts and the evidence are damning, they blame the cops. And here, where the facts and the evidence are damning, they blame the Democrats and the media. And expect all of us, despite all evidence to the contrary, to buy their bullshit, hook, line, and sinker. But our Montana values and our Republican values compel us to keep digging and reporting the truth. Compel us in the face of well-funded but ignorant elected officials to speak up and point out their horseshit. Because Montana is worth the effort. And the credibility of the Republican Party is worth the effort. Because Montana matters.
This is just the tip of the iceberg, folks. We haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. Join us next time when we continue to go through the special counsel report and reveal exactly what is going on in Austin Knutson's Department of Injustice and Jennifer Fielder's Private Service Commission. Thank you for taking us with you on your journey today, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Montana Values Podcast. Consider sponsoring the show by going to our website, montanavaluespodcast.com, locating the sponsor page and clicking on the donate button. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at MTValues. Find us on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. What's your favorite Montana value? How do you live it? Write to us. Our email address is montanavaluespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.